The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Now, earlier this year, you might remember, we talked about a little bit earlier this year, Alberta Health Services sounded the alarm about uh, an unprecedented number of syphilis cases in the province. And just a heads up, parents, we're, we're going to be talking uh, about this and about uh, about sex, sexual health uh, here for the next little bit. So I'm just... Uh, going to wave that flag for you right now. Um, HS declared an outbreak in July. Then just a couple of weeks ago, they sent out a new public health alert to a, to doctors asking for their help, saying we need some help with this. So you're asking how bad is it? Well, in 2018, there was a total of 1,536 cases of infectious syphilis reported. So far this year, we're at uh, 1,753 cases. And you know what? Almost 70% of them are in the Edmonton area. You look back a couple of years to 2014, there were 160 cases of syphilis in all of Alberta. Laura Keegan is the Director of Community Engagement with HIV Edmonton. She joins me in studio. Laura, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. No, I always like talking about all these fun infectious <laughs> diseases, right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, and again, um, you know, syphilis isn't your specialty. Your, your, your specialty is on community engagement and prevention across the board. Yeah, well, and particularly with HIV Mm -hmm. and hepatitis C. So more the blood-borne pathogens we spend a lot. Obviously, we're an AIDS service organization at HIV Edmonton. Um, But to say that we don't delve a lot into the STI realm would be pretty naive. So we certainly have have a lot more information than the general population would about STIs. And we work very closely with the STI clinic Mm -hmm. and the nurses there and the infectious diseases doctors teams, you know, people like that. So we're very much invested. It was it was interesting because, you know, you look at some of the numbers out of Calgary and the numbers are quite low and, and AHS is trying to figure out why it is that the numbers in Edmonton are, are so much uh, higher and some of the, the health specialists saying it's partially due to a greater number of people getting tested, which is, which is good news. Mm-hmm. Um, but they say if you look a little bit closer at the data, we do see a bigger rise in the number of cases than that they'd expect to see. So still wondering what's going on and 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 one of them su- su- suggested that the increased use of meth might be uh, playing a role in this when it comes to STIs mm-hmm. when it comes to um, uh, sexually transmitted infections how big of a role does drug use pl- drug use play in it well, you know, being uh, HIV Edmonton is a harm reduction based organization. So believing very much in we take, you know, we accept people where they're at, but also understanding that some of their behaviors have the potential to cause harm mm-hmm. to themselves um, and drug use as well as um, non-safe sexual mm-hmm. practices. All of these things get rolled into the prevention around different STIs, including HIV. And, you know, if people are doing are partaking in drugs of a variety of kind, not necessarily specifically meth, but certainly that gets wrapped into this. There's a big piece of the puzzle that gets missing um, around prevention. So people aren't are focusing on their drug use and meth has a short high. And so people come mm-hmm. back over and over again um, more consistently than say other drugs. And so it's a very high risk, you know, due to the number of, um, of, incidents that harm could occur, um, whether it's taking the drugs, um, consuming them, having safe consumption, all of those things. 
But it also means that they're not thinking about condom use. They're not thinking about, do I have clean needles? Do I have clean um, drug use materials? And so they're they're thinking about the drug and, and escaping whatever th- other things they might be trying to move away from in their lives. There's so many layers mm-hmm. in Absolutely. this. When you talk about, for example, you know, uh, clean needles, and you, you look at then safe injection sites and, um, uh, you know, treatment options. If someone's saying, okay, you know, I want to get clean, not having enough beds, not, you know, all mm-hmm. of this sort of stuff. There's there's um, there's the use and everything that comes with it, but there's a lot of things around it that kind of dictate what's happening. You touched when we were talking beforehand about about policy decisions mm-hmm. um, and and how that could play a role a role in that. How does it play a role? Well, policies are driven of in the like I was saying in the day and time that we're in right now. So every time there's a change in government, any time, and and I'm not calling out any one Mm-mm. government versus another. There's just a change, and our values drive how we determine who we elect, whether it's an MLA or an MP. Our communal values sort of drive that. And so we see shifts in policies depending on who the government of the day is. And so there have been times, and that's why things ebb and flow, but it's also why I believe we haven't really made as many changes or as much headway when we look at some of the social policies as we could, because every time we have a shift, they look back, let's look at, does this work? They're going to analyze, you know, right now they're looking at a lot of things around the supervised consumption. Mm -hmm. And we use the term supervised versus safe because people are taking illicit drugs which are not safe mm-hmm. um, and making it supervised. So it's it's a distinction that's important to let people understand that um, in no way are we stating that this is a safe practice, but we can supervise to ensure that people um, survive the, the, the dose and we don't have overdoses. But you know, so we, we spend a lot of time reviewing does this work and coming back to um, a value-based situation. And and that can change that policy that then can change the outcome for a number of people Mm -hmm. that require those services. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing. We've seen it before and we will continue to see it. Um, But that's also one thing that we've noticed now is that there has been some shifts around more conservative values and that changes sexual health education in schools. That changes um, how we speak about harm reduction. Um, It changes the values around, you know, pull up your bootstraps kind of a philosophy. we, we've used the word harm reduction a few times now. Mm-hmm. How do you define harm reduction when it comes to the work that you do? Um, I think it's a recognition that there are certain behaviors, you know, let's use sex as an example. Um, I always you know, say to people like sex isn't bad and, and the, you know, the only people that can abstain are people that don't have sex and that's not very many of us. <laughs> so to, to say it's a bad thing, but how can we, we also know that STIs and pregnancy and other things come out of a sexual act mm-hmm. and being sexually involved. So we want to minimize any harm that can come out of the act of, of having a, say a so-called more a risky behavior um, and we work in multiple forms of harm reduction because because when you think about it, we want to, if people are using drugs, is there a drug that has that is easier to manage than say meth? Mm. You know, is there mm-hmm. something that uses fewer needles? If you use a, 
a drug that requires fewer needles, there's fewer chances of HIV mm -hmm. contraction because you don't require the same number. There's all kinds of ways that we can reduce the harm. And ideally, through that idea of harm reduction is you're engaging with people on a very human level where they're at without telling them to change. You're giving them options. And often what we see is through those options day after day is that you start to they start to come in and say, well, wait a sec, do I want to do this at all? Or could I do this completely differently? But without that relationship, they're very isolated and alone and can't always get there. And of course, are at higher risk of of transmission of HIV or other STIs or of an overdose when we're speaking of drugs. Um, Laura, I suspect that um, people have already, you know, maybe switched the channel. Um, <laughs> you know, they're not comfortable with, you know, listening to, to this conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and that's fine. People, people have, you know, whatever. How difficult is it in your work to have those conversations, to have people listen, say, hey, you know what, this, this, this. Yeah. I, I mean, um, we, we can have difficulties even as, as parents to children mm -hmm. uh, having, the, uh, having those conversations with in between friends, in between sexual partners, oh, uh, sure. the, the person that you're, you're being intimate with. You don't even necessarily want to have those conversations and you need to have those conversations. So when it comes to the work you do, um, how open are people to having them? I think I think people are actually surprisingly more open than I think a lot of people believe. Is it because um, you're a stranger, maybe? Maybe. Um, of course, I'm not very. I'm not. I'm not a stranger to a lot of people not in Edmonton. So. <laughs> um, people are quite used to seeing me. But in the same hand, I think um, I work in a field where they see me and hear me, and I'm on the radio, and so um, I'm someone that they know isn't going to judge or, or place value judgments on what they've done. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to just listen and, and be there. And they, people don't always have that person in their life that they can guarantee is that person. So sometimes it's better to speak to a stranger or we get Facebook messages of asking questions. I did this on the weekend. Am I, you know, what mm -hmm. should I do? And we have a lot of anonymous ways to communicate nowadays. Um, but I think it's, it's around... Um, recognizing as, as parents or friends or people in the community, um, I hope that they don't turn out because I hope that we can be helpful in saying that the concept of testing or safer sex options and all these things, the concept of it is really simple, um, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And so I use, uh, I use an example where I was trying to lose weight. Well, I'm always trying to lose weight, <laughs> but it was at one particular time, my sister is a clinical dietitian. And I said to my sister, I said, you know, can you help me create a diet or how can this work? How can I do this? And she says, Laura, it's super simple. It's calories in, calories out. It's math. And I looked at her and I said, well, that is not helpful <laughs> at all. Like, how, how mean is that? Your sister tells you that it's simple or easy or simple. Yeah. And then she said, I didn't say it was easy. Mm. And it's if people can think of it similarly, um, getting an STI test, um, you can get that done anywhere. People think you have to go to the STI clinic. Now, the folks at the STI clinic are super amazing, fantastic. However, they're also really, really busy. <laughs> so there are other people that can do that. Your family physician, a medi clinic, all these places can do these STI tests. But and so that's it's simple, right? But it's not easy mm -hmm. to walk in and ask for that requisition. Women, one of the biggest um, things that I try to let people know um, is that a, a pap smear test, which people, women are commonly getting, I hopefully, I hope, um, but they believe that that 
they test for STIs at the same mm-hmm. time and they don't. Mm-hmm. And so even just some of those common misconceptions of saying, you know, just tell them while you're doing that, can we just check all those other boxes? But it's hard if you don't have a good rapport or you don't trust or you're just from a generation that's embarrassed or you didn't have an open family. I, you know, it's, it's all those things add up to make it a simple thing that's not easy. I think the embarrassment part goes oh, a long, sure. long way. I think that that's a, that's a really big driver on why some people don't want to go in and have that conversation, Yeah. Um, whether it's with your doctor or, or at the clinic. And I think it's important to remember that your doctor is your doctor and, um, and yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, that's the person you should be able to have that conversation with. And the folks at the clinics, I mean, really, this is something that they deal with every day. I mean, you, you know, you park your, you, you, you park any judgment that you have at the door when you go to work, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it's, you know, we we can help. I, I've talked to lots of people about how to negotiate condom use, how to ask their partners, you know, and texting. So this anonymity thing that I was speaking about, I don't want people to become anonymous. I mean, we, we live in relationships and, and I don't want things to have to be anonymous, but sometimes there's some protection in that. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be naive to think that people are uncomfortable and that's okay, but we also have our health and our sexual health needs to be talked about and addressed. And if the only way to address with that sexual health is to have some more anonymity, um, then that's, that's okay. Okay, so even saying, you know, I don't know how to have this conversation or or how would I even negotiate or ask my partner? And I think, you know, it, you know, with texting, sometimes you can take that step back and say, you know, I'm really excited about the next level that we're taking in our relationship. Have you had your mm-hmm. STI test? And then you're not face to face. So you can still do that. And sometimes those things can actually benefit and get us further ahead because we can take that little step back. I'm not, you know, sitting in front of someone's face saying, so, yeah, about that STI mm-hmm. test thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to talk about that. But it is important and it is our health. And, and that's where I think AHS is asking physicians to say, we really need to put all that stuff aside and not make any assumptions about anybody. And let's just assume that people are sexually active and that that's okay. If we start with that assumption, we're actually starting at a better place than assuming people are not or are doing shameful acts. It's, hey, we're all sexually active and let's start from there and just say, hey, I'm just going to do this test and it's okay. And if they take it out, the person doesn't have to ask. And I think that's where we're trying to get or where I'm assuming people asking AHS is saying to physicians, that's why we need your help. Can they guide that conversation? I get told when to have a mammogram. Let's just say the same if they just said, hey, we're just going to fill in these boxes. It's no big deal. We all have to go in for the yeah. annual test and those exactly. are probably you know, a little bit more uncomfortable than asking for a check mark on the box on the requisition form. For sure. Right? And so I think um, if physicians can important. make that move. Yeah. Right. And we neglect our sexual health side. Uh, Laura Keegan joining me in studio this afternoon. We need to take a quick break back with more right after this. Laura Keegan joining me in studio. She is the director of community engagement at HIV Edmonton. We've just been kind of, we've been talking. We, we launched this conversation with the fact that uh, the, the number of syphilis cases in the in the province is, is through the roof. The AHS declared an outbreak in July. A couple of weeks ago, AHS sent a new public health alert to doctors asking for help. The number is, you know, the highest it's been since like, I think the 40, something, something like that. Um, Laura, I, I'd like to think, I'd like to think that, um, you know, people my age, parents my age are, are, are raising children or, or have raised children um, who are more comfortable talking about 
things like this, about condom use, about um, having those conversations. What are you seeing? Um, sadly, I, I, I haven't seen a big shift, mm. you know, and, and I was, I had a conversation in reception just uh, before I came up about a similar thing, about thinking that when I grew up, I felt like, you know, like I'm, I'm 48, so I was moving through this time of, you know, becoming more comfortable where yeah. sex was being being more talked about. Um, and I was really lucky in that I had parents that I didn't have one conversation. I had conversations my whole life mm-hmm. about about it. So it never felt like one big sit down and have a talk. Um, <laughs> so And I'm thankful for that because I think that'd be awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, um, I think what I... And I, this is all just anecdotal. Yep. I don't have any research to state this. But I think sometimes, too, there's been a move where kids at home are, are at home for a lot longer. But I don't necessarily think the dialogues that parents and children are having are are any deeper. Mm-hmm. So they might be around more, and pe- but people are spending a lot of time on their tablets, on their computers. And I'm not blaming social media or any of those things. I love all those things. But um, but I know that it, it, it can get in the way of an actual conversation versus when people used to watch TV together and you all had to watch one show because you only had one TV mm-hmm. in one room. Um, and nowadays people can, you know, like I can watch on my iPad and my niece can watch on something else and you can be all be in the room together not even watching the same thing. And I think one of the benefits of, of watching TV together is that it it gives a segue so parents don't have to think of something to say. They can, you know, hey, what did you think about that? Mm-hmm. Or is that happening at your school? What's, you know, it, it was a segue. And I think we're missing some of those segues into tougher conversations. And so even though people think they're very open-minded, I'm not sure that their open-mindedness um, has actually been... In a, through a dialogue and transferred to their children. And we did see there was research done just out of the U.S., so I can't compare it directly, but we do our own um, analysis. But we do a lot of education, and it, was, it stated that a huge percentage of millennials are not comfortable being friends with or using cutlery and all these things of people living with HIV. Mm. We find the same, we find it amazing. And that's, and that's four decades of stigma and discrimination. Yep. It's not about education. It's about how people are talking about something. Because I can go in, I've done education, I'll do an hour presentation on HIV 101, a stigma exercise, and I'll ask people, so you were uncomfortable at the beginning, where are you sitting now? Well, I'm more comfortable. I want people to be comfortable. There's no, there's no risk to being a student or a friend or you know, any of these things with people living with HIV. And yet all that education hasn't moved them. Mm. And so it's stigma, it's generational. Lots to think about, Laura. Always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me.